there's some good collaboration features there. And I've, I've talked about um, using Google Docs as part of an ADR um, architectural design record, um, which we've done at prior companies, um, to try to use that practice as a practice we, we do with a global team. But it's, I don't want to make more meetings. I don't want to make more 11 p.m. meetings. Um, but I don't really quite understand how to get enough carrot involved in the game to get people to, to review the docs. Get a bigger stick. <laughs> if the carrot isn't working, get a bigger stick. Yeah. Like. Our team has shrunk to the point we don't have to worry about meetings anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You can all fit in the same room, even with COVID. Both of you. Yes. That whole um, two pizzas thing. Yeah. (laughs) Don't have to worry about it anymore. (laughs) So Ken gets two pizzas and that's the team. Yep. (laughs) Ken, you're putting on some pounds, I see. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the separation between personal and work lives, made harder by the pandemic and the always-on nature of work and, well, modern communication. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the official positions or policies of our sponsors, our employers, or any other reference entity. So this week, as we've already said, we're talking about the work-life balance, and this kind of came to a head when we've read some articles recently, um, one of which was really pretty pretty brutal on what happened, but... Um, We'll put the link in the show notes, but it's, it was a New York Times article about Google. But we don't really, the, the main thing that struck me was not the harassment side of things, but the the author's her description of how work took over her life. And I came of age in the dot-com era, professionally, and that's not unusual. I remember long, long weeks for the startups in the late 90s when that was all you did. You worked every waking hour. And as I've gotten older, I kind of refuse to do that anymore. And I, it's when I interview, it's very important to ask, what's the work-life balance? What time do people come in? What do they, when do they leave? And try to get a real honest feel and you have to listen closely. You can't just take what they're saying, you know, use your head while you're doing it. But it's really something to to really think hard about when you're looking at employment. How much of your time is it going to take? What's it going to be like? So the last startup I interviewed at, um, this was a while ago now, probably in the last, you know, two years or so. The, the gentleman that was interviewing me lost interest in the conversation when I asked about work-life balance. And it was like, oh, you're one of those places. I don't want to work. I don't, you don't want, you don't want me. I don't want to be there. That's fine. I, I have no issue with that. I don't take offense. Um, I have a family. I have kids. I have other interests outside of work. 
I am not putting in hundred hour weeks. And there's, there's kind of something to be said for being fresh out of college. You're not really attached. Um, you have a, maybe a really interesting job or you're trying to build up your skill set and using that time that you have to, uh, to succeed at your career, to build yourself up, to build those around you up. Um, but that's, but those 80, hundred hour weeks is not sustainable. Oh, and especially as we, we become better professionals, as we have families and friends, um, it's important that we make sure that we prioritize our families and our friends and the relationships that we have around us outside of work. Well, that's what I say. Don't, don't get me wrong. My career blossomed in the beginning because I lived on campus and I was able to work on projects that I would not have been able to work on outside of the work environment. But it was for me. It was, it was my stuff. And to this day, I still work on projects that are mine. They are, they are things for me for either home automation or whatever is, is tickling my fancy these days. The coffee but machine, it, folks. The coffee machine. <laughs> oh, that, that's a big one. But it's not work. I'm not being measured on it. I'm not being asked to do status reports on it. I'm not, you know, it, it doesn't get factored into my performance evaluation or my compensation cycles or anything else. It is entirely because I want to scratch the itch, which also means that if I run out of time for it, if I need to go do something else, if the family wants to go to the beach, if anything else is going on, I just drop it and it's fine. Um, the, the danger of having work intermingled with life so deeply is that people come to expect a certain level of productivity from you and then you can never get away from that without changing without changing employers being the victim really of your hard. own success totally. i've been there i kept telling a coworker, quit performing miracles because they're no longer miracles it's expected that you can do this any time of day 24 7 no matter where you are people would rely on him to fix stuff and, and that's hard when i walk into a new opportunity I want to show that, you know, you hired the right person. You got the right consultant. Yeah. Um, I can work a couple of miracles and prove that this was a, the right choice and the valuable choice. But the key is, is sustainability. If I can get that word out of my mouth, the, the key is being able to do it in a way that doesn't burn you out and doesn't leave you overextended. And in my experience, that means about 45 hours a week is the highest level of sustained like and when i say sustained i mean like doing this for three or four or five months there will always be times especially in operations where this week is just going to be awful you the pager's going yeah. off whatever's going on there's a project that's happening and everybody just has to put in more right now it is not the game industry that is legendary for <laughs> running you know 100 hour work weeks for two plus years and then as the project is coming to a close, laying off the team so all the bonuses get paid out to the executives who are still there. And I wish I was joking about that. That, that story has repeated enough times that I feel like it is common in the industry. And that's one of the reasons that I don't I, look at game I, companies. One of the nice things you know, about being in Europe is even salaried folks have contracts with our limits. And it is set. In my contract, then it's 40 hours a week. There can be more if, you know, there's need and, you know, it comes up that some extra work occurs, but it's, it's in there as leverage that they can't abuse you, that you can't be expected to work 
24 7, 7, you know, 365. I I worked for a state university a number of years ago. And one of the nice things about the, the legal frameworks around that was that state employees are not allowed to work on average more than 40 hour weeks. Now, if you, if you're on call, if whatever else happens, that's fine. But if, if your manager is asking you to do more than 40 hours a week on average, you can take it to the state, um, whatever the, the analog of HR for the state organization was and either file suit or get your manager reprimanded and get things fixed because there, there was actually a state level law that prohibited it. So you had some protections there. And I actually think we're seeing a slight change in this. I'm not going to say it's radical, but I think we are seeing a little change in this in the United States just because the threat of unionization has been so, I don't want to say so great, but getting greater for tech workers that at least for some larger companies, they're starting to not want you to work 80 hour weeks, 100 hour weeks, because that's going to only push you either one to unionize or two uh, have state or even federal regulations passed that will further harness the company. So uh, it's at least been in my experience talking to some people who work for, you know, larger companies, at least that work life balance is actually a little is better because the company does not want to expose itself to lawsuits or possible unionization of the workforce. What do you, what do you folks think about unionization of tech work? I, I like the idea. I mean, I actually like the idea of unions themselves, but the problem becomes when they get so big and they're their own political entity and it, I don't know. I, I, on one hand, I think it, it, it would actually be good for the industry, but at the same time, I could see where it could also be to the detriment as well. So I, I, I don't know. It, I guess it depends on what the union looks like, what the leadership is. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's definitely something that should be explored. At least I, I do feel uh, as seen in these numerous articles that in our industry, abuse is, is rampant or at least is, is, is very, wide and unfortunately it impacts us who are first coming in or probably have the least amount of experience because we're so afraid especially if you do land a job at at facebook or google or one of these big companies and you know you've basically i don't want to say hit the peak of your career early but you you've definitely landed in a good success in success early and now there's the fear oh man if i don't perform if i get cut will i get back to this while I be able to go to another company and they find out, Oh, well, I was fired or I was let go. I won't. And so I really think that fear is there and that's what causes a lot of these issues uh, that, you know, people are just afraid. And so therefore they work themselves to death. When I was working those type of hours, it was the late, like I said, late nineties and I was doing development and I was working them cause I liked it. <laughs> it was one of the, best positions I've had. The work was fun. The group was fantastic. And we just worked our asses off because we liked each other and we liked what we were doing. And we spent that time together doing the work. My wife didn't like it so much, but I I was enjoying the work. And that's the trap. But you've hit it. The definition of success The working at a fame company is purported as the definition of success. And it's not, especially when you walk no. in f- fresh out of college. If you enjoy what you're doing, if you enjoy the folks you're working with, 
if you don't realize it's six o'clock and you should have stopped an hour ago because the work yep. is engaging, that to me is success. I remember so many nights where I was, oh crap, it's 8 p.m. and I was just rolling. You know, it was it was enjoyable and I just lost track of time. And, and that's how this trap starts. And that's why folks need to be careful because when you really love your job, when you actually enjoy the thing you do, I used to tell people, especially the beginning of my career, that my hobby turned into my job and I'm kind of happy that my hobby pays pretty well, that yeah. it allowed me to really dig into a lot of tech things that I've always wanted to dig into, but actually had a budget because I'd work and I had somebody holding me accountable to getting things done. And so it was, it was really cool and challenging in that sense. But that's the trap that a lot of especially younger folks fall into where they, they get, they land a job at a fang company or they land a job somewhere that is high pressure or a high pressure startup. And they think, Oh, well I might be able to get rich out of this. And I really enjoy <laughs> the coworkers. And I really enjoy the code and I really enjoy doing this stuff. And that is all fine and good. As long as the work environment is healthy. And when you do need to take a break, you're, you're able to, but what so often happens is somebody who isn't a great manager gets promoted or somebody who isn't a great teammate joins the team and their, their personality or their, they, they bring a more, more of a toxic environment to the team. And then you realize that you're trapped and, or you realize six months later that you're miserable and you're spending all of your time at work and you're asking yourself, why, why am I doing this? Why am I burning myself out? And you've fallen into the trap. So, and you're set up for that. Uh, it, if yeah. you're able to go to college and have a stereotypical experience, which has not been the case for so many of us, especially in COVID, um, college can be some of the best years and most fun years of your life. And you immediately walk out um, with a good degree and get hired by a fan company. Um, granted, there's some privilege in, in that, being able to accomplish that. But that's what happens to a lot of these folks. And they think that their new work family is going to reproduce some of that college experience. And that's that's not quite the case. The, the goals of the company don't match the goals of the university. And neither do yours. There was a, a bunch of talk years and years ago, I want to say like mid-2000s, about the bro culture at, I think it was Facebook in particular, which I think at this point has changed. But the the folks who were running a lot of the development teams there were looking for college graduates who had a particular mentality about how they socialized and how they spent their recreational time. Um, hint, it was a lot of drinking. And they developed a rather negative reputation in Silicon Valley from my friends who live there about the the kinds of people they were attracting and they have distanced themselves from that now because that is again not a not a healthy place to be but it's exactly that tra that trap jack where you have somebody who's been in college and had a really good time in college and they said okay hang on we can get paid real money to just write code and to goof off and to like drink a lot together do the same things let's, let, let's keep on doing that and they didn't they didn't appreciate or realize the shift that is required for running a healthy adult life. Now I'm an and adult. That's a really extreme example, or maybe not so extreme example of what, of what the privilege that a lot of us enjoy can actually do. That's, that's telling of this isn't right. I think another aspect of the work life, you know, there is that trap with development and, and young folks, but not long ago, I was in a operational position where the work-life balance went to hell because 
there was this very small team. We were on call a lot because there weren't many of us. And we also got alerted a lot. And it got to the point where I was rarely getting a full night's sleep because we were on call every week because the team was so small. And it it got bad. It got to the point my wife was starting to push on me to find a new position because I wasn't the only one getting woke up. Totally. And it, um, and you really scratched my itches, Ken. I mean... <laughs> I I started thinking about on-call and carrying a pager a lot differently once I realized from a really great talk at Monitorama, uh, not my own original thinking, that a bad uh, on-call rotation is literally detrimental to your job. Instead of building skills and building your resume, for lack of a better word, um, you're sitting there fighting fire 60 hours a week because the pager keeps going off every two seconds. Um, I've advised friends that if that's the pager duty rotation kind of schedule that you're going into quit, just walk away. It's not worth it. This was one of those, you know, frog in the frying pan things of it just kept getting worse and worse over time until it was brutal. Um, But it was also, it was the pointy haired boss who, you know, was setting the alerts. <laughs> no, you have to get paged on this. Well, I don't have anything to do when that happens. That's okay. You still have to get alerted for it. We have to know it happened. Well, th- why does it have to wake me up for that? And another thing from one of those monodrama talks that may have been the same one, Jack, that stuck with me was a an abusive on-call schedule is more than three pages a week. It does not take much to get you from a healthy work-life balance to unable to sleep because you are afraid you're going to get woken up by the pager or whatever else. You're unable to have dinner with friends pre-COVID or whatever it is because you're so afraid that you can't be away from home. Or you're actually, you're actually interrupted so much that it's not even afraid. It's you are interrupted so much. You can't. What I found is I was never getting a deep sleep because I was prepared for the pager. Yeah, but yeah. that line starts at three pages a week. Yep. It, it is not at, oh, yeah. when you get paged three or four times a day. No, it's three a week. Let that sink in because a lot of folks just sort of assume when you're on call that, oh, I'm going to get paged a couple of times a day. That's not good. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's an environment that's got a problem. And much like, you know, if, if you go on Reddit or any of the job advice stuff, People will tell you that HR is not your friend, that HR is there to protect the company and they'll, they'll go on and on and on about it. But one of the things about bad on call rotations is if you let it be bad, if you just accept the fact that you're going to get paged a couple of times a day, there's no motivation to the organization to fix it because you're taking care of it. You're, you're doing the job. You're doing that hero work constantly. Stop, push back, have insist on on on-call review meetings find ways to expose to management how much extra time this is taking because it will burn you out you will be miserable and you will find a new job and then they've got to first they've got to find more people i've been in organizations that the turnover was extraordinary simply because the pager rotations were so abusive that people would last six months and then say you know it's not worth it and they'd, they'd walk 
and you don't want to be there either. And and Brendan, I think you hit the the nail on the head earlier when you were mentioning, uh, especially you know, beginning of your career, probably very much like mine, where you were doing a lot of projects to to beef up your skills. But the key there was that it was for you. And it wasn't necessarily something for a particular company. Now, sometimes those align and it's something that you really want to do and it happens to benefit the company. Um, but I think it's per- it's important early on, you know, it's, it is important to have side projects. Those side projects should not always be from your place of work. They should either be something maybe open source, get related, GitHub related, or, you know, you're, you're doing something for a community or something else. Or it's just a, it's just a thing that runs in your house or I, I don't know, just anything. But if you're working 80, 90 hours a week and it's all at work, that's probably not a good thing. Yeah, my canonical example for that. Um, I was living on campus at a university and I was unmarried, no kids, all that. And I realized that Apple had added all of the, the next stuff to, to the Mac OS. And so I could put my network, I could put my home directory on the network. And then if I was in my apartment, if I was in my office, if I was in one of the design labs in the architecture school that had really powerful machines, I could just log in as me wherever I went. I just had to get the plumbing all worked out. And so I spent a couple of weeks kind of tinkering around and figuring out how it worked and making it all making it all set up. And then it was either the next year or the year after that, we turned it on for all the students. Because they're like, oh, this is actually going to be really helpful for them so they can move projects, especially large projects around. And they just log in to wherever they, they need to be and they have all their stuff and all their settings and all their preferences and all their mail and all their bookmarks and it all followed them around. And it came out of me putting time into it myself, but I did it because I was solving my problem, not because I was tasked with solving a work problem. And that's, that's the best kind of, um, confluence is the bad word, but that the confluence of, um, of interests. And that's really resume building. That's story building. That's, when you're sitting in front of a potential employer, that's a story you can tell about your interest, your passion, and how you brought value to to the organization. Um, Jared, you're going to be embarrassed, but every time I look at Prometheus, I think about Jared because there's one little widget that he actually put on the screen and got accepted and is the most handy thing. And it's it's stories like that that, create this really large impact that I think is what is what impresses an employer and it's kind of what I'm trying to get to when I do interviews with people. Sorry, Jared. So I'm, I'm going to need a link to that to that feature, to that PR, so we can stick it in the show notes, Jack, because I want to embarrass Jared a little bit more too. Oh, sure. Uh, what's funny is I think that's going to go away, by the way. But it's, it's still in there. <laughs> it's still in there right now, but uh, what's this? You landed it. They merged it. So another thing that I, I need to throw out here that you need to be careful of is becoming a workaholic or getting too close to workaholics. I love people who are passionate about their jobs, who are passionate about the work they do. I have found that the people who, who are compulsive about it and will happily put in 80 or 90 hour weeks every week ongoing, it's infectious in a bad way. It kind of rubs off on the, the corporate culture very quickly. And then it, it becomes, becomes expected, expected of yeah. everybody. And it goes from being a, hey, I'm really enjoying doing this to, well, I have to keep up with, you know, the Joneses or whatever. So everybody now has to put in 50 hours and then 55 hours and then 60 hours. And pretty soon you realize that you're going to work at eight in the morning. 
you're done at 6.30, it's on-call times or it's COVID times or whatever, so you're never really far from your computer anyway. And somebody messages you and you're like, oh, well, I'll, I'll just reply to them quickly. And it turns into a, a two-hour PR review at 9 o'clock at night. Meanwhile, the dog is waiting to go out or, you know, the, the pizza's getting cold or whatever it was that you were trying to do. So workaholics scare me in that sense, not because I don't like the work, but because it often gets into company culture in a bad way. So be careful. And especially as teams get larger and more diverse, um, somebody's messaging you, asking you for PR feedback uh, during the middle of their day, and it's nine o'clock at night for you. And that doesn't mean that you need to also work somebody else's time zone. Uh, when I was a contractor, um, because I charged hourly, adopting a pretty normal and expected um, new sort of nine to five was really easy because that ended up being a full day for me. That's what my clients were expecting me to charge them. Um, and if I worked extra, you know, I charge extra and the client really didn't want to have to foot unexpected bills. So that set me up with a good practice of, of trying to set expectations with who I'm working with that I usually work from nine to five and I stick that in Slack. So messages are snooze outside that window. I put that in my Google calendar so folks can see my normal working hours for scheduling meetings. But I try really hard to set that expectation. And the, the struggle there is it's not that I can't be flexible if I need to meet with a team in Israel at an odd hour for me or be on call and work a pager. Um, but these are the hours that you can expect to find me online and doing work. And to me, Jack, what you just said there is the most important part it is managing reasonable expectations. Um, one of the, the parts of my current job is helping out in a general chat room for developer support. And a lot of folks will ask kind of simple questions because they know that we will give them answers that are usually pretty accurate pretty quickly. And so they can get a targeted answer rapidly. When it's a lot of the folks I work with are in California. I'm not in California, which means that I will often get pinged at 730 at night when I'm cooking dinner or doing something else. And so I have taken to when I'm when I'm the on the on duty person for the room, I try to be gentle and polite, but ask, how important is this? Can this wait until tomorrow? I'm in the middle of doing dinner or whatever it is. And people get the point very, very quickly. They go, oh, I'm sorry. This really can wait until tomorrow or Actually, we're blocking release and we really need to figure this out. Can you, do you mind helping? And I do not mind, especially when it's something kind of big or like, oh, did you realize that the build system is down? So, oh, th th thank you for telling oh, me. Dude. Our alerts didn't catch it or whatever it was. But managing those reasonable expectations and communicating them clearly to the rest of the team or the rest of the, the people you talk to is invaluable in helping build that, that segmentation between work and home life. And the challenge here is that everybody has different experiences. Everybody has different needs and requirements for work-life balance. So I come from doing a lot of consulting where I did that 95, I charge you per hour. This is what it is. And as I've broadened my experience with other opportunities, I realize the folks I work with don't have that same experience. They're still looking for work-life balance but their work-life balance may look different than mine. 
So while I try to keep my habits of, of a kind of strict nine to five, uh, other folks I work with might enjoy getting up early, doing some work when it's quiet, taking a break to be with their family during the day and finishing up later in the evening. And, you know, that's perfectly okay. I had a coworker years ago who lives in California, but enjoyed working East Coast hours so that they could go bike riding and stuff in the evenings or the afternoons for them. So they would be online generally before I was and work my hours. And it, it worked out pretty nicely. Um, I think they got a, a lot of good bike rides in because they were able to start their ride at two in the afternoon local time for them. And again, communicating your preferences and, and being explicit about it is really helpful. I no longer have on-call duties. Yes. Congratulations, Ken. Um, and I've found now that the end of the day, and this is where COVID's coming nice with forcing everybody home, I have my full setup at home. I don't have an office desk back at the office. I have, I'm at home in my office and at dinner time comes, I walk out and I close the door and slack and everything is left in here. I may come back pop in and check, you know, because we do have people in other time zones, but I am basically now done and that's okay. That's I've, you know, people understand that the work day is over and I'm off and it's nice to not have that concern and not think about it and not be worrying about keeping up with anybody because I'm not, I'm, it's, it's after hours. And if it's truly important, somebody will call you on the phone. And that's the other thing. Yes. If it's really necessary, we, our phone numbers are available. Somebody can call and or slacks in here, but I have it on other devices. I just don't check it or I will look at it and just not respond. You know, And to me, that's part of the beauty of COVID. Yeah, it's been hard for work-life balance. It's been hard in so many ways. But it's enabled this workforce of remote working from home. Uh, Most of the companies that I've had the privilege of working with have have trusted me reasonably to get my work done without watching me through my video camera. So I can work the hours that work for me I can develop the habits that work for me. I can take a break during the day for as part of my sort of work-life balance pattern to spend time with my family. And it, the whole concept of this Puritan you're at the office from eight to five, I really think is a thing of the past because of, of the last year of our remote digital lives. Now, I I can, on the other hand, though, see the argument for a lot of companies like having their employees in person. And a lot of it comes from trying to be intentional about building culture. It is much harder to build culture remotely than it is to do it in person. And for, there's there's no delicate way to say this, for the younger workforce, or the ones who are fresh out of college, who have not built good time management skills or built good assertiveness skills about finding work to to jump into next being in an office is very helpful to keep people from going into either silence or their own personal things and like oh well i guess i'm gonna wash the dog because nothing else to do and not not engaging correctly 
So as much as I really love working from home, I do entirely understand why a lot of companies really prefer to bring people in, to get them into the culture, to kind of indoctrinate them into their way of working, which of course ties back to the beginning of this, this episode where we're talking about the letting that become your entire life. And there's a balance to be drawn, of course, but I really see why companies like having in-person stuff for culture. And then obviously we can't with COVID and that that's, that's what it is right now. Um, but again, balance. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jer Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Oh, Jack, where are you? There is no good joke.